Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you're visiting with us or new to us, we're, we've started a relatively new study here in the last book of the Bible, <clears throat> and we are studying currently these letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and they're representative of all the churches in all the world throughout time. The number seven is one of perfection and completeness. Last week we studied the uh, letter to the largest, or the church in the largest city in Asia Minor of Ephesus, and now we're at the second largest city of Smyrna. Smyrna was second only to Ephesus in its wealth and its population, and yet it didn't lack a strong self-esteem because it it, called itself first in Asia in beauty and size. They were quite proud of their distinctions, of their wealth. They were smug about it, and they were harsh towards Christians whom they viewed as disturbers of the peace. The Romans persecuted the church at Smyrna. The religious people of Hebrew origin and otherwise persecuted the church at Smyrna. And yet, this church, we know from church fathers like Polycarp and Ignatius, this church lived and existed and thrived well into the second century. No holes were barred in persecuting this church, and yet it lived and thrived into the second century. How can a persecuted church, how can persecuted Christians not just survive, but thrive? A couple of weeks ago, we had our missions conference. A few weeks ago, we had our wonderful world missions conference, and Enoch Wong spoke in the uh, middle service or the, in the joint Sunday school. And uh, I said to him in between, I said, you know, we are very humbled by our brothers and sisters in the Far East who truly suffer for their faith. We're humbled by it because we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, to put it in the words of the writer to the Hebrews. Enoch said, not yet. You, we, he lives in America too, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. To be a Christian is to be persecuted, the Bible says, eventually. And the question is, how will we not just survive it but thrive in it? The answer is in this portion of Scripture from verses 8 to 11, the letter to the church at Smyrna. Would you look there with me as we hear God speak to us? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Clinical psychologists or professional psychotherapists or counselors, when they're dealing with trying to provide support to someone within a dysfunctional family will sometimes use the language uh, of the identified patient to describe one person within the family system who has been singled out by the rest of the family in need of therapy. Now, here's what it really means. Sometimes in a dysfunctional family, dysfunctional, we're all dysfunctional to a degree, but I mean an abusively dysfunctional family. Abuse is, is systemic in the family. It's, it's, it's because of harsh personality or by, by uh, abuse of, of substances. But abuse is being meted out by, by one or, or a couple of persons in particular. But the whole, the whole family system can sometimes come around and protect that person and pretend like everything is normal. And then inevitably into that system comes somebody who messes everything up by trying to bring health. And so they, they, they either are an in-law who have married into the family or sometimes it's a child who comes of age and says, you know, this isn't right. That, that abuse, that, uh, abusing that substance, abuse of alcohol or drugs or, or that physical abuse or that emotional abuse, that verbal abuse, that is not right. And they think, you know, I would be of help if I just speak into it, so I'm going to call attention to it. And then they find that the attention has been turned on them and they're being scapegoated. That the family system turns on them, and, they, and the family system says, you know, you need counseling. And so that person goes to counseling, and the, and the strategy is sometimes that often is basically to help that person remember reality. That you're, you're, you're right, you, 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 you may have some things to repent of, some things to bring into the system, but you're right, this is not the way things ought to be. This abuse should not be here. That the way they're they're harming themselves with those substances, that's not right. And so they 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 get coached up, and they say, "Okay, now I I know what reality is." Again, they go back into the system, and they sort of lose touch with reality. They come back to the counselor. They have to get reset. Christians throughout history have been the identified patients of most cultures. We have seldom been in the majority, and when we have been in the majority, at least in, in, distant, in distant history, we haven't done the best of things, but, but uh, we have seldom been in the, minor, in the majority. And, 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 and the, the culture inevitably says, you know, there's something wrong with you. Everybody in the culture believes this way. The, the, the enlightened people vote this way. The, the enlightened people vote against that. The enlightened people read these books. The enlightened people watch this media. The enlightened people have this worldview in common. And you are out of step. You need corrective therapy. Or you need to be persecuted. We need to shut your mouth. Maybe we need to shut you up in prison. Maybe we even need to kill you. 
How do we survive? Well, week by week, God has given us corporate worship for one, where we come into this place and we we get our, our, our buttons reset. We get a reset on reality. No, this is reality. Jesus is king. Jesus is ruling and reigning. May not be all entirely obvious, but he is going to win. And so let's remember what is real. And that's effectively what Jesus is doing for this church in Smyrna. He is saying, here are three thoughts, three thoughts by which you will keep sane. Here are three thoughts by which you will remember what is real. Here are three thoughts that will anchor you and provide ballast for your ship so that you can not just survive, but thrive. Three thoughts. Jesus knows you. Jesus is with you. And Jesus will raise you from the dead. Those three thoughts have been the thoughts that have anchored Christians throughout history. They will make no sense to you whatsoever if Christ is not your Savior and not your Lord today. And may He use these words to draw you to Himself or back to yourself. But if you are a Christian today, these words will be precious to you. The very first thing that that, uh, Jesus says in verse 9 is, I know your tribulation. I know it. Now, before you can appreciate that, I want you to back up one verse and look at this, this statement by Jesus, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. When we studied chapter 1, we looked at a number of attributes of Jesus, and if we will pay attention in these, these stu- the study of these, these letters to these seven churches, we will find at least one of those attributes that we studied in chapter 1 repeated as particularly focusing and helpful in each of the, each of the, of the letters. And, the, and what we notice in, the, in this letter is in verse 8, the words of the first and the last, the alpha and omega, the symbols that are on the front of the balcony back there, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet, the first and the last. Jesus says to them, first of all, I want you to remember something. Before we talk about anything else, I want to remind you that I am the first and the last. I was before creation. I will be after death. I will be reigning until and throughout all of eternity, I am eternal. I know all things that have happened in the past. I knew all things into being. I know what will happen in the future, and I know what is going to happen into eternity. And if I know all of that, then I know you. And I know what's happening to you. And when that word know is on the lips of someone, a, a, a Hebrew, someone who has been among the Jewish people, who's known the Old Testament, when that word no comes on the lips from the lips of a Jewish writer as John was, it means more than mere cognizance. It is intimate knowledge. It's the word used to describe how the first baby was born. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. It's, 
It's sometimes described sexual intimacy, or it's predestinating intimacy. As, as we said earlier in regard to the baptism, God said to Abraham, I have known you so that you would command your children. Those whom he foreknew, he also called. Those whom he called, he also chose. Those whom he called, justified and glorified. He knows us intimately. So what does he know about these believers and what does he know about you? He says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. That word is thalipsis in the Greek and it means a crushing burden. I know your suffering. I know your tribulation. I said that these, these Christians are being persecuted for their faith. They were persecuted because they named the name of Christ and refused to bow to any other idol or God. <clears throat> the Bible says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be the identified patient. Well, it's not quite that way. It's I, I, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, the, it's that idea. You'll be singled out. You'll be persecuted. You'll be maligned. And that will be true of you. And at some point in your life, if you're living faithfully to Christ and refusing to bow to the pressures of your culture or your peer group, and there's a, there will inevitably be a choice. Will you be faithful to Jesus or will you go along with the crowd just to keep them off your back? And when you choose to be faithful to Jesus, you will be persecuted. But you will also suffer Maybe not directly because of your witness for Christ, but you will suffer as a result of being in this broken world. There is systemic evil in this world. It came because of Adam's sin, and it has invaded every area of our lives. And so systemically evil works through our world and brings suffering of all kinds. It brings Yes, prejudice against our Asian American Pacific Islander brothers and sisters and Hispanics and African Americans and, and Jewish people. Who, who sometimes uh, people use this reference to the synagogue of Satan to justify their anti-Semitism. There is that, there's that kind of systemic evil. And then there is the systemic evil of disease and pandemics and death. And there's a, the systemic evil that results... In, in natural catastrophes, and that suffering too is envisioned here. And yet, how is it different for Christians? Because the devil can use that, just that what we might say ordinary suffering, to put the question in your mind, can God really be good? And you have to suffer for his name this way. Can God really be good? And you suffer this cancer? Can, can God really be good and you are laid off? Can God really be good and you have this car wreck? The devil used that with, with Jesus himself, didn't he? The devil came to Jesus when he had been hungry for 40 days and he said, isn't God your father? And you can turn stones into bread? Why is he making you hungry? 
And into the middle of that suffering, whatever it is, brothers and sisters, whatever you're going through today, whether it's a direct, full-on assault against your faith or whether you're suffering as a result of living in a broken world, Jesus says to you, I know. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. These Smyrna Christians were being denied access and participation in the economy. They were denied fair wages. They were pushed out of places of influence. They were ostracized socially. And, and they didn't just feel poor. There is a Greek word for feeling poor. They were truly poor. And that's the Greek word used here. They were patokes. They were truly poor. They were being denied the basic necessities of life. And yet Jesus says to them, you are rich. No, you don't have everything that you, that you need from the ordinary means by which you should receive it, but I will provide for you just as I have promised. Seek first my kingdom. And these things, these basic necessities of life, food, raiment, and clothing, I will provide for you. <clears throat> and Jesus says, I know too the slander, the false witness that is being made against you, false testimony, even from religious people, maybe even your own family, maybe, maybe those from your own race. They are, they are persecuting you, he says to these Smyrna Christians. There were Gentiles and Jews in the same in the same church. And the, the, as Gentiles, they were being persecuted by the Romans. As Jews, they were being persecuted by the other religious people in, the, in Smyrna. And Jesus says, I know the truth. Sometimes that's all you'll have. Nobody else knows the truth. Everybody else may be slandering you. Maybe even people who identify them as fellow church members, themselves as fellow church members, people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, slander you. But Jesus says, I know. You know, anytime we are, we are suffering... It is an opportunity or to, to reorder the loves of our lives. That's what Augustine said. We are constantly called upon to reorder the loves of our lives. Now, what we t the, the way we typically apply that in Christianity, the way we typically process it is to say, yes, that's right. I've got to reorder my loves. I'm loving the wrong thing. I'm loving the wrong person. And that's true. We're always loving, we're always in need of reordering, having our loves reordered. But I want to tell you from this passage that what Jesus says is when, when, you're, or when, the, when the loves of your life are being reordered by suffering, you're being forced to reconsider the loves of your life, here's where you must begin. You are loved by Jesus. That's what we forget. Let me tell you how this uh, happened in my own life a number of years ago. I remember it being in seminary and, <clears throat> and, 
and uh, I was the first, first semester of my first year in seminary, and, and uh, I thought I had it made. My parents were paying the bills. I was living for free in somebody's house, and somebody did my laundry and provided my meals and so forth, and I, I was suffering for Jesus, I thought. And my roommate, who had left a lucrative career to follow the ministry and would look every day in the mail for, by faith for a check that would supply his need, he said, you know, George, I hope that someday God is good enough to you to give you the opportunity to have to trust Jesus for the provision of your basic daily needs. And I said, I'm fine, thank you. I'll just, I'll just enjoy it through you. How's that? <clears throat> and then I got engaged, and my dad lost his job. A few years after that, uh, children came along, and there have been a number of opportunities in life to experience the joy and the terror of having to trust Jesus alone for financial needs. That does not make me holier than anybody else. All of us must be living, should be looking that desperately to Jesus for our supply, but we can sometimes forget. But I want to share one situation with you for your encouragement. There was one of those occasions <clears throat> about 10 years ago when, when I had uh, all financial hope, it seemed, for me was lost. We were, in the middle of, we were in the middle of the recession. The recession had affected our church, our church giving, and had affected my own personal life situation. And with my, I'd become responsible for my parents. And it's a long, complicated story. But let's just say I had no idea how we were going to survive. And I, 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 could, I could deal with that through the week most of the time and, and say, you know, the Lord, Lord's going to provide needs and so forth. He makes those promises. But it always hit me. It would always hit me on, on Sunday. I say that to my fellow pastors. That's where intense it's where intense doubt and persecution again, and, and, there's, and there's probably that tr that's true in your lives too. Regardless of your occupation, there's usually one time of day or one season of life when you're more vulnerable than others. And for me, it's, it was and remains to be Sunday morning. And I was pacing in my house when I was supposed to be preparing for my sermon, but I was pacing worrying because, you know, why pray when you can worry? So I was worrying. And I heard a verse of Scripture, not an audible voice. It's a verse of Scripture I'd known for a long time. It was there all along. Nobody, God didn't write it in the sky. But I heard it in a way I had never heard it before. It was Jesus saying to His disciples, Fear not, little flock. Your Father knows your need. And all I could hear was, Your Father knows knows. Your Father knows. I don't know why that comforted me and remains a comfort. I don't know exactly. 
I can't explain it because I can't explain the reality of the Holy Spirit communing with Himself. I can't explain exactly in, in, in detail what it means for the Spirit to bear witness by and with the Word in our hearts, but I can bear witness that it works, that when you hear Jesus say, I know, I've got this, I know you're suffering, I know what you're worried about financially. I know where you're tempted to yield, to compromise because of financial pressure. I know what people are saying about you, and it's false. I know it. I've got it. That's all a Christian needs to know, that the one who is the first and the last, the sovereign one, the one who controls all things, the one who is all good, the one who pronounces his love on you, even if the mess you're in is one created by yourself, he says, I know, and I love you anyway. That will sustain you. I'll just touch quickly on the other two. One is Jesus says He's with you. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, you don't see it mentioned explicitly here, but Jesus has already said in chapter 1, He is with them. Because it says Jesus was walking among the candles. He's walking among the churches. He is with them in this. I am with you in your poverty, in your, tri- in your tribulation. When they slander you, they slander me. I am with you and will be with you in prison. You'll never, wherever you find in the Bible... Be strong, be courageous, do not fear. There is always the accompanying promise in the immediate context or the nearby context because I'm with you. God never says to you, you know you need to be courageous. Just go out and be courageous. Pull up those bootstraps of courage. Never says that. He only says to be courageous. Fearless, courageous, because He is with us. There's no place you can go. There's nothing that can be done to you except Jesus is with you. And Jesus remains a human being at the right hand of His Father, a resurrected human being, but one who still has scars in His body and one who can say, I know what you're going through. You're not alone. And finally, he says, he will raise us incorruptibly. That the resurrection, his promise of resurrection is what should sustain us. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. The Scripture says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's, that's hell. There's the first death. That's physical death. Second death is hell. And he says, here's the condition. You, if you finish, if you persevere to the very end, you will receive eternal life. Now, some of you are, are quaking. You're saying, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can persevere. 
Well, what is this? I thought that, that salvation is unconditional. You know that salvation is conditional. Salvation is conditioned on works. It's just the question is, whose works? And the only way that you and I are ever going to be saved is by the works of Jesus through us. And yet they, and yet they really do occur. We persevere to the end not in a straight line always, not always in an obvious triumphant way, but He will see to it that we tri- triumph in the end because of His life in us and then promises to raise us from the dead. You know, it's, like, it's, it's sort of like this. The Christian life is sort of like this. When, when my kids were little, we'd ride those, those trains, those locomotives around a, a park, you know, a zoo or a, a theme park or something, and the, and the engineer of the train would, would call the child up and say, hey, you want to be the, the, the engineer for the day? Do you want to pull the whistle? And, the, and uh, in, in theology, we say there is an instrumental condition. There is a condition that has to be met for something to be accomplished. You have to persevere to the end in order to get it eternal life. So the instrumental condition of the whistle is you have to pull the cable. If you don't pull the cable, the whistle won't blow. And so the engineer calls the person up, and the little person, the little two-foot-tall person, and, and for the cable that's eight feet up, he says, he doesn't say, now, if you find a way to span the gap between your two-foot height and the eight-foot distance, you will be merited with engineer of the day. He doesn't do that. It's impossible. Instead, he picks them up, and he says, stick your arms straight up, and when you get to that cable, hang on to it, and keep your arms stiff. And then he puts the, they put their little hands on it, hold on real tight, and then he pulls the body down, and the whistle blows. And then what else happens? We gets them down, he gives them a little engineer cap and a pen, and he says, congratulations, you're engineer for the day. That's the Christian life. Jesus says, you've got to make it to the end and pull the whistle. Nobody who doesn't make it to the end and pull the whistle is saved. Now, how are we going to get there? I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you. I'm going to lift you up. You're going to grab with your little hands, and I'm going to pull you all the way through. And then when you die, I'll finally prove once and for all to all the cosmos that you didn't get here by yourself because you will be really, really dead, and I will raise you from the dead, and you will live with me forever. And you'll understand truly what I mean when I say I am the first and the last. As I said earlier, Polycarp, Polycarp became the bishop of the church at Smyrna. A few years after, may have overlapped with John actually writing this book. Polycarp always taught, you know, we will be persecuted and you shouldn't run toward persecution, but when persecution comes to you and you can't avoid it, don't run from it. He got an opportunity to live out his sermon. Eighty-six years old, he was a bishop, and they, they said, you know, the only way we're going to extinguish these Christians for, finally is to get rid of the head of the church. We've got to kill Polycarp. 
People in Polycarp's church found out about it, and they put him in a farmhouse out in the country, and they hid him there for a while, and then eventually they persecuted the people who knew where he was, and they caved, and they sold him out, and they told him where he was. He was able to move one more time, but the second time, they found him, they surrounded the house, and they said, we're going to kill you, and he said, would you please let me just pray for a little bit before, before we leave? And, uh, and then he also insisted that they get something to eat, because he said, you must be very tired looking for me as long as you have, so sit down here and eat something something. I'm going to go in the other room and I'm going to pray a little bit. They heard him praying. They said, why in the world are we here to kill him? But then they remembered that was their job. So they dragged him back to the city. They gave him opportunity to recant several times. He never would. They put him on the stake to burn him. They said, you don't, he said, you don't need to tie my hands up. I'll stand right here. They couldn't get the fire to light. Eventually they stabbed him with a dagger. They gave him one more chance to recant before they killed him. And he said this, for 80 and six years, I have served my King and my Savior, and he has never done me harm. How could I possibly blaspheme him now? That's the reordering of loves. Jesus loves me, and he's never failed that. How could I possibly disown him now? What will take you through, a pandemic or persecution? Reordering your loves by remembering first Jesus loves you. He knows you. He's with you, and he'll raise you even when you die. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blessed hope of the gospel. And we ask that you would root us and ground us in it. The pastor is weak the elders, the deacons, the parishioners, we're all weak. Lord, we can't make it to the end on our own. We can barely wear masks. We're weak. Would you please manifest yourself as our strength and begin by sending your spirit to seal with our spirits that we are the beloved children of God. In Jesus' name we pray.